Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Today is a special edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series. This is our second Hot Topics recording where we aim to provide timely information to help patients, the general public, and healthcare professionals better understand a current popular topic. Today's episode will focus on the newly released USP Chapter 797 standards. We are pleased to welcome Dr. Andrew Murphy, who is the Chair of the Office of Practice Management, Editor of the Practice Matters Newsletter, and former member of the Board of Directors for the Academy. Dr. Murphy is in private practice in the Philadelphia area and has a long and distinguished career dedicated to education and advocacy. He recently played an instrumental role as a physician consultant and advocate for allergists in the United States through his work with the USP Expert Compounding Committee. Dr. Murphy, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today, and welcome to the show. Great, Dave. Thanks for having me. Well, let's get into it. So USP Chapter 797 has been discussed among allergists for quite some time. Why don't we Mm -hmm. start by having you just tell us what USP stands for and then a broad description of the Chapter 797. So uh, USP is the United States Pharmacopeia. Um, whose job is really to sort of um, set standards um, so to ensure that there's quality, safety, and benefit for medicines and foods that are produced, actually not just in the United States, but worldwide. It's actually you know, an international standard-setting organization. Um, I think one of the, the cool things about USP is that it's, it's really a non-governmental agency, so it's really an independent nonprofit. Um, and not many people know this, but it was actually founded by physicians in the 1820s. Well, it's interesting. So really, it's it's all about safety um, for our patients and consumers. Correct. Yep. And and how does what, how does Chapter 797 come into play? What's that about? So 797 is this this specific chapter that deals with sterile compounding. So anytime you mix or alter a substance um, for sterile administration, Chapter 797 applies, and it sets the standards for how that can be done. Okay. And then how does USP Chapter 797 impact practicing allergists? So for us specifically, um, immunotherapy. Immunotherapy, we're mixing two, three, four, five different allergens together, which are you know FDA-approved drugs, basically. So because we're mixing them together, that falls under the sterile compounding rules, and 797 applies for us. So really, we're talking about allergy shots. Correct. Yep. Okay. And does this impact patients um, in any way? Uh, I would say indirectly, meaning that by making sure that we're making allergy immunotherapy extracts in a safe and sterile environment, um, it impacts them that they're getting a safe medicine that will not cause an infectious complication. Okay. So it sounds like, in general, a good thing to make sure that we're we're putting antigens together in a sterile way. Correct. Okay. So why was this whole process started in the first place? Were there any specific concerns that prompted such a thorough review? 
So you have to go back probably about 10 years, and I, I never really understood exactly why this immunotherapy sort of fell into 797, but um, having been on the committee for the past couple of years, I actually had a conversation, I'm not going to mention names because I don't want to mention names, with one of the committee members who actually was an allergy patient and was getting immunotherapy. And he happened to ask his allergist, well, you know, what standards do you follow to make this? And unfortunately, the answer was, we don't really have standards. We just mix it up. And, you know, to a compounding pharmacist who sits on a sterile compounding committee that's had standards, um, that was probably the wrong answer. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where, you know, what, 10 years ago when this first sort of came to the attention of the uh, USP, and that's where the first sort of standards that were set for compounding allergen extracts came into the USP 797 chapter. Well, that's really interesting. Do you, do you have any sense of if that's how other standards have come into existence? Is it just sort of word of mouth and interest of members, or what else is behind it? No, I mean, I think um, I think most, quite frankly, most compounding gets done by pharmacist. Mm. Um, you know, this is sort of a unique, you know, allergen extract compounding, something unique to, you know, our specialty. Well, we do that in our office, and we've been doing it in our offices for probably 100 years. <laughs> Probably yeah. since the beginning of immunotherapy, um, so I think it's one of those areas that just wasn't really didn't really hit the radar screen for anybody because no one quite really knew about it. They sort of knew it was out there, but just didn't wasn't really sure what was going on. And I think having that comment was probably not a, um, a judicious comment. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's to the wrong person, unfortunately. Oh, well, I think fortunately, I mean, it's actually a good thing. Quite frankly, I think we have to have some standards to how we're doing this to make sure that this is, uh, you know, the extracts are mixed in a way that's appropriate and safe for patients. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it makes sense. Um, I just, I, I do know that it's, uh, it was a, a lengthy process and a bit cumbersome, and I think now we'll talk about some of those details. Uh, but first, um, the new standards were released on June 1st, 2019. When do they actually take effect? Six months, so December 1st. Okay. Yeah, um, so a six-month lag period where people can get things set up and, Get ready to go. Okay. Now, there are three main parts to the USP Chapter 797 standards, and I'd like to break them each down individually. Let's start with the personnel qualifications. Can you tell us what that covers? Yeah, so can I just correct you a little bit? There's actually oh, probably sure. about 20 different sections in, in, ah. in 797. Um, it's actually a quite lengthy chapter. Um, and basically, it applies to all sterile compounding. And what we were able to in discussions with USP, have as a special section for allergen immunotherapy, which is section 21 of the chapter. And within that section, um, there's specific requirements that we have to meet in order to do allergen immunotherapy in the office. The requirements of that is that this is a prescription set that is specific for one patient. So if you were to come in to see me and we decide that you're going to go in allergy shots, um, Section 21 would apply to me to make up your specific allergen extract vials. That's where the except I shouldn't say exception, that's where that specific Section 21 in USP applies for what we do in practice. If one is making up vials to be used in multiple patients, Section 21 does not apply and the rest of the chapter applies. One must follow the rest of the 
regulations, or, or I shouldn't say regulations, the standards in the rest of the chapter. So it's a very specific instance where a prescription set for immunotherapy is for a specific patient only. So the personal qualification part of that um, is it, stuff that we've already done. We've had this for a while, right? So you have to designate a person or persons in your office who are doing the allergen immunotherapy. You've got to train them, right? You've got to teach them how to do it. Um, you have to evaluate them and you have to supervise them. So training is obvious. Sit down, teach them how to do it, how to read a prescription, how to draw stuff up, how to put it into a vial. Um, there's testing, um, which we've had for a long time. I think the, you know, the college has had the um, written test that you have to pass yearly. Um, as long as you pass the written test and, and demonstrate to your supervisor or supervising physician that you can do this appropriately, you can move on and do that. Now, the thing that was sort of new and different is we've always done the media fill test. I shouldn't say always, but for the past 10 years or so, we've had the media fill test as a requirement to make sure that we're doing the transfers thoroughly. What was at it this time in this round with the USP is the fingertip glove test and thumb sampling, um, which is basically a way to ensure that one can gown thoroughly. So after one does hand hygiene, head garb, face mask, gown, puts on the sterile gloves, you then put your fingers and thumb onto a uh, auger plate, probably the easiest thing, onto the auger plate, both hands. Um, you have to do it three separate times and then put that in the incubator um, as we would do with the uh, media fill test and make sure nothing um, grows or there's no actionable levels to deal with that. So basically they want us to demonstrate sterile technique with the uh, fingertip and glove sampling, make sure it can be done appropriately. Initially, it's done the first time you do it, it's three times, and then after that, it's just once a year. And the media fill test continues as long as being, you know, once a year. Okay, so uh, it's, it sounds like a lot of, like you mentioned, things that we've already been doing for years. Um, and Correct. It just spells out just the qualifications in more of a, a detailed format. Does that sound appropriate? Yeah, and just with the addition of the meat, with the addition of the, the fingertip and glove sampling, and a lot of the stuff codifies some stuff that we've already done. It just was never in writing, but now it's in writing, and okay, that's what we've already done. We're good. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it seems to me as though allergists can choose between two options for uh, the detailed requirements of the facilities. Uh, what Correct. are these options, and how are they similar to each other, and also how are they different? So the similarities are that no matter wherever you're doing your compounding, you know, the room that's going to be done in, you know, it needs to be um, a room that's, I want to say clean, but not a clean room. <laughs> There's definitely implications for what clean room means, and this is not a clean room. But, you know, it's away from unsealed windows. You know, it's not connected to doors that go outside. There's minimal traffic flow, minimal dust collectors and whatnot. So within that room, you can either have the allergen extract compounding area, which is a specific area that's clearly delineated where one can do compounding, or you can use what's called a primary engineering control, or, which is an ISO 5 or a hood. Both of those, either the PEC or the allergen extract compounding area, has to be at least a meter away from a sink, um, and part of that is because sinks grow things, and with the aerator in there, they can aerosolize particles very easily. You want to restrict access when compounding is going on. So if you're in your office doing compounding, you don't want 13 people walking in and out around that area because, again, disturbs the airflow and chances for particles to stir up and bacterial contamination. 
um, within the allergen extract compound area, that's that very specific area within the room that you're using, some common sense stuff, the walls, the floors, the fixtures, the shelving, the cabinets, the counters have to be cleanable. There can't be any carpet in this room uh, with the allergen extract compounding area or where the PEC is. You want to make sure the surfaces that you're using, particularly in the allergen extract compounding area, are resistant to, um, to damage by cleaning and sanitizing agents. And the surface where you're using, where you're doing the compounding in the allergen extract compounding area um, should be smooth, impervious, free from cracks and crevices, non-shedding, so it's going to be easily cleanable and disinfected. Um, and disinfected, sorry. And then obviously, obviously, common sense things has to be well lighted, good temperature, good humidity, so it's comfortable for the person who's you know doing the compounding. You don't want them sweating and dripping sweat on top of what you're compounding. Oh, well, that makes sense, yeah. So what are some of the practical... Did you get all that? Well, yeah, no, that's good. And and for listeners, we're going to have links uh, to some resources that we're going to mention yep. towards the end here. So we're going we're gonna to sort of use this conversation as the introduction to these uh, these new yep. requirements, and then uh, people can read up on it on their own. <laughs> yep. Um, okay, so what are some practical aspects that allergists need to consider as they choose between these two options, the ISO class 5 or the dedicated allergen extract compounding area? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it depends what you already have. I mean, in my practice, you already happen to have a hood, so we're just going to keep going with the hood, the ISO 5. Um, if you do go with the, the ISO 5 environment, you have to make sure it's certified um, twice a year that it is able to maintain ISO 5 environment. Um, and that's just you have to call up the company, and they come in, and they, you know, check out the, the whole hood and make sure it meets particle counts and other requirements for an ISO 5 environment. I guess if you're asking if you're you know just starting out in practice, what would you do? I think probably the easiest thing is probably an allergen extract compounding area. Um, you just have to find the place within your practice where it's a you know a good place to put it. I mean, unfortunately, I've seen people in the past use kitchens and stuff like that, and that's just not acceptable. Um, so you really can't do it at the kitchen table. Um, so you really need to find a room that's you know sort of away from traffic flow, you know, away from outside influences with doors and windows. That you can sit down and, and you know have a clean area where you can do the compounding. Okay, so it really it, a lot of it boils down to just the limitations on the space that's currently available, um, yep. probably some cost as well and things like that. Yeah, I mean it's, there's really minimal cost I think in terms of modifying an office. You know, originally when this chapter first came out, there was there was a potential for significant cost. Um, you know, it looked like it may have been, you'd have to actually set up a clean room suite, which is incredibly, you know, challenging and expensive to do. But, you know, with good discussions with the USP, you know, and the unique nature of immunotherapy in that most of our products are very heavily glycerinated and or have phenol in them in the end product. And the database that we have through the ongoing, um, you know, survey that the College and the Academy does, I mean, I think... Last I looked, you know, it was close to with sort of estimating this year's data. I think something like 35 million or 40 million potential injections that have been recorded over the years with their survey, with no infectious complication. So that was very powerful data for USP to hear. That and the fact that we now have in the academy with the QCDR, the um, one part of the reporting is about infectious complications for immunotherapy that people can um, utilize in their practices. So, and that's one of the sort of, I don't want to say agreements, but one of the things we talked about with USP that we're, we're, we're going to keep on doing this. I mean, we, we want this product to be safe and effective, and I don't think there's many specialties that actually do something like this with whatever they're doing that have ongoing, consistent surveillance of one of their therapeutics 
to make sure that it's being given you know safely and effectively. Well, that's great background. I'm really glad you mentioned that because if we have any non-allergists or uh, you know listening in, especially patients, it, I think it's important to mention that for as you've said over a hundred years uh, with millions and millions of allergen immunotherapy injections, we haven't had any reported infectious complications. So it's not like these new standards came up because people were getting sick all of a sudden. Um, I think that you know it's been well well established that these are very safe. Correct. I mean, I, I think the the standards were started before. Yeah, quite frankly, I think there probably was some standards. We just didn't do, a, you know, as a professional organization, didn't do a very good job of codifying it. I mean, I mean, I trained I've been in allergists for 20 plus years, and you know, this is sort of the way I was taught to do allergen extract compounding. That's <laughs> what we do. I mean, we, we didn't use a hood, but you know, the same same standards basically. But we just we didn't really codify it, and you know, it just ended up being an unfortunate, you know, comment off the cuff by someone that sort of led to where we are. Yeah. Which I think is fine, quite frankly. I mean, we, we need to have standards. I mean, I think having a minimal standard to make sure that what we're doing, A, we're doing it the right way, first off, and, and B, what we're doing is safe for patients is important. And I think the academy um, and the college have done a great job with the ongoing surveillance and the academy at the QCDR now um, having the um, option to report immunotherapy and infectious complications is very helpful. I think the other thing is we have close contact. I mean, I don't know about you, but in my practice, immunotherapy patients will let you know if they have a problem, <laughs> you know, and they're there every week. So there really is very, very close follow-up and contact, which I think is very unique. I mean, you know, most times we get people a medicine, we see them back in six months, and that's it. You know, immunotherapy patients, you know, when they're building up, we see them back every week, and we're asking them every week, how you doing? What's going on? Any problems? You know, and when we're on the maintenance, we're seeing them every, you know, two or three weeks. So there's really very intensive, close follow-up um, with these patients looking for not only just the infectious complications, but more importantly, you know, the immunologic complications in terms of adverse events, which, quite frankly, is the bigger risk. You know, immunotherapy, the risk is the danger, quote-unquote, is really the, you know, adverse event from giving people back what they're allergic to. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's really the bigger risk. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, you know, the last main portion of the um, new standards addresses documentation, and this is something I personally, and I'm sure everybody out there has seen such variability. Uh, can you just talk through some of the main aspects detailed here? So the documentation is, again, I think an area where we probably lack a little bit. So basically, you have to have SOPs, right? So standard operating procedure describing how, you comp- how, how the compounding process works. So sort of the nitty-gritty you know, how does someone gown, you know, how do you clean the room, all that kind of stuff. You know, you have to have your personal tra- personnel training records, competency and qualifications that they're doing. So the testing you're doing every every year, you know, put it in a folder somewhere. You know, if you have a, you know, a PEC or the ISO 5 hood, that needs to be recertified twice a year. So, you know, keep the recertification record so they know it's working. If there's any problems with it, you know, what was the problem, how did you fix it? You know, temperature logs, um, I think we all sort of know this and do this anyway, but, you know, where you're storing your extracts, it should be a temperature log in the fridge, you know, and be checked, you know, daily to make sure it's where it's supposed to be. You need to have compounding records for the allergen extract prescription sets, which basically is our prescription, so that's pretty much in you know, the medical record. And, and that obviously has the stuff on there that pretty much, um, I guess, Linda Cox developed years ago for Trying to standardize what's available on the prescription set, which you know, so the name of the patient, or name of the allergen, the concentration, the volume, the vendor, lot number, expiration date, 
you know, when you're making up the extract, you know, the date and time you prepared it. If you have an internal identification number, you want to identify the people involved in the compounding process, you know, how much was compounded, 5 cc's, 10 cc's, um, and the storage requirements, you know, what's the on-use date. For us, it's typically six months, but it can't be any longer than the can't be any longer than a year, and it has to be um, the shortest outdate of any known component. So if I make up a vial a vial for you today, and one of the components expires in a month, that's when the whole vial expires in a month. But I think for most of what we do, and make most of the outdates of the you know, the stock solutions are probably you know 18 months in the future, and we never get to those short outdates. The other thing that was sort of added was, um, you know, QC procedures. So basically, you know, a visual inspection, which I think we do this anyway, we just don't document it very well, mm. is, you know, when you're done looking at it, making sure it looks the appropriate color, you know, there's nothing floating around in the vial that shouldn't be there because obviously if it's, you know, as you know, some of these can be, you know, sort of yellowish or golden in color depending on the, what the allergen is, but, you know, if all of a sudden it's green or purple, <laughs> yeah. probably, probably not good, <laughs> shouldn't be using it. Or, you know, if there's some precipitate in there, you know, it, sh- it shouldn't be used. Okay. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, and as you mentioned at the start, uh, allergists have until December 1st, 2019 in order to be in compliance. Do we yep. have any sense, you know, of the percentage of either private practices or academic centers or both that already meet these requirements? I I, I think most people do, but to give you a number, I, I don't know. Mm, okay, but you, your sense is that most most folks are already in this general direction. Yeah, I think most people are. Um, I think healthcare systems are probably, might be a little bit further along because of, you know JCO, and JCO adopts USP as part of their standards. So you know, if you've been part of well, I'm, you're part of Iowa State, so I'm sure you've been part of a JCO <laughs> mm-hmm. visit yes. visit. So you know, the previous USP standards apply. Healthcare systems probably should have most of this stuff already in place to begin with. Okay. And, and, it depends on the, and actually, it depends on the facility. I mean, I know some places, um, you know, I don't know about what you guys do, but I know some institutions, it's the pharmacy that actually makes up allergen extracts. It's not even done in the clinic. So mm-hmm. I think it sure. depends on where it's, where it's made. Uh, can you anticipate any practices that won't be able to meet these requirements by the deadline and, and why that may be? I don't think so. I, I think there should be no reason not to make these requirements. Okay, great. And if, if no, that's good. Uh, it's right. Yeah, one enough. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fantastic. And so, if someone, let's say, is not in compliance uh, by December first, what happens? So, yeah, part of that depends on where you are, right? So, if you're part of a healthcare system, obviously, JCO applies and USP. You know, JCO adopts USP as part of its standards. So, if December second, you know, JCO shows up at your institution, and you don't have this, you know, then you could get, you know, a JCO warning or whatever JCO does to you. Um, you know, outside of healthcare institutions, um, it depends on your state. Um, you know, in Pennsylvania, the State Board of Pharmacy does not adopt USP standards. Um, and the State Board of Pharmacy can't come into my office. The State Board of Medicine can if they want to, but the State Board of Medicine doesn't adopt USP. So if you're independent um, of an institution, it, it's really on you as a physician leader of the practice to make sure that these standards are implemented in your practice. Theoretically, I mean, the FDA does have jurisdiction. USP is a sort of a standard, it, it is a standard setting organization, but it's not a regulatory or enforcement organization. FDA is. So theoretically, you know, FDA could come into your office and look for this and see if you're following the standards. I think they're probably more concerned about the big compounding pharmacies 
um, as opposed to individual practices, but, you know, it's a potential. And, you know, it depends on your state, too. I mean, some states, like where you guys are in Ohio, the State Board of Pharmacy is taking a little bit more of an aggressive stance against compounding. I think you guys have to get licensed to be compounders in the state. So it depends on what the state wants to do. So as you mentioned, it sounds like most folks shouldn't have any trouble meeting these standards. And uh, <laughs> if they don't, no. there's a, a whole list of potential things that could you know, be bad if they don't. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you've already been following the USP standards to begin with, there's really sort of just a couple of subtle changes. You know, okay. you do have to incubate things. You do have to do culturing and stuff like that. So I mean, that's a little bit different and setting up maybe get the SOPs a little bit more formalized than what people have. But it, it, it's, overall, I don't think it's completely onerous. You know, got to do it. Yeah. Good for patients, good for patient care, and it's, it's good for um, making sure we're delivering a safe and effective medicine. Well, great. I, I love the positive messaging. And, you know, I think this is a good time. Uh, are there other resources that are available for allergists and their office staff to learn more about these requirements? Yes. Yeah, so, um, well, the podcast will be available soon. <laughs> <laughs> That's one. Um, the Practice Management Workshop, which is coming up in July, and I forget the date. I think it's the 10th. There will be a session there about USP. And I think, you know, the CAMI is actually obviously working on some other educational resources for people to read through. The other thing is just download the guidelines. I mean, you can go to USP and get the guidelines and read through them. I mean, Section 21 is not that long. And, you know, just read through them and just, you know, fine-tune what you're already doing and, you know, and, and do the best you can and, you know, make it so it's uh, as close to the guidelines as possible. So if there's a problem, you know, you've, you've, you've done your job. Right. Yeah, I know the, the Academy on the website currently, they do have a nice summary as well as links to the full document as well. So um, I think, like you said, if, if people are interested, it's, it's pretty easy to find. Yep. Now, you mentioned the practice management workshop. Are you aware of any other regional meetings or dedicated in-person sessions um, put on by the Academy before December 1st? Uh, I don't. I know I'm going to Florida after. I'm personally going to Florida for their meeting, and we'll talk about USP down there. But I, I don't know right now. Okay. I think um, staff is working on stuff. Um, I just don't think everything's been finalized yet. Okay. Yeah. So I'm sure that this is a hot topic and will be part of a lot of regional meetings. So I would say anybody listening out there, get in touch with your, your local uh, groups and, and see what they have planned for any meetings coming up. Yep. And I think probably the next couple of months in practice matters, we'll be putting stuff in there as well to help sort of get people sort of, you know, piecemeal as you move along here and you know, do a little bit of time. I mean, doing everything at once can be overwhelming, but I think if you just break it down to different sections and it's sort of, you know, little things at a time, eventually it all becomes together and it's fine. Great. Well, you know, this has been fantastic. I, I really can't thank you enough for taking the time to be with us and, and talk about this hot topic. Before we depart, do you have any additional thoughts to share with our listeners? Just I think Penn State's going to beat Ohio State this year and, you know, we're going to win the Big Ten. Okay. And I'm sure most <laughs> people listening, they don't care at all, but thank you. <laughs> All right. Now, well, now I think I think everyone will be fine. I think they just need to just um, you know take a step back, read this, and, and most of it I think is common sense. You know, keep the room clean, do it thoroughly, and just document what you're doing. This is not a um, major disruption of your practice. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Drew. We really appreciate yep. it. All right, Dave. Thanks. Appreciate having oh, on here. Yep. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaaai.org for any pertinent links from today's conversation. 
If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through iTunes or Google Play so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.